Watch out for that dog's luck, that wet and mangy, that rabies-ridden fortune. Try to bring it to heel, it's gonna make you kneel with every shaky hand. It's gonna bite ya, man, it's gonna bite ya, gonna hunt you when you run. Watch out for that dog's luck. From Elderblade Productions, this is Echoes of Exeser, Episode 5, The Fadeaway. Nighttime in Sunscape can be difficult to determine. There are clocks, but an entire city cut off from the sun can be disorienting. In some of the larger caverns, the stalactites are lined with a reflective glass, and bright glow bulbs project washes of red, purple, and blue hues to mimic daylight fading into blackness. The stalactites were black by the time I returned to Plux. I attempted to track Merriweather for some time, but it was pointless in a city this large. I let my emotions take hold of me after hearing her song. I was confused, frightened, furious at the idea that she could be the killer from my memories. As time went on, though, those feelings melted away into gratitude. I still did not know what part Merriweather played in my past, if any. But hearing her song, it was the first time since my contract with Isolde that I had reclaimed a part of my past. However fleeting, however grim, it was mine. A piece of me, one I thought had been lost forever. Rather than let my thoughts consume me, I threw myself into doing something productive. First, I patched things up at the bar. Nix was gone, predictably. He'd taken advantage of the commotion with Merriweather and fled. Apparently, he'd taken his food, our drinks, and the payment. I had to pay double to smooth things over, and extra for the drinks I had spilled, along with my little stunt on the rooftop, I also paid for a room, figuring I would likely be here a while. My per diem was more than enough to take care of it all, though it did leave my purse feeling disappointingly light. Pluck showed me to my room. It looked like the one I had barged through earlier. Window overlooking the district, stiff mattress on a rigid frame, cherrywood armoire and writing desk. I closed the door behind me and unloaded my pack on the mattress. I took stock of my things. Seawater had soaked through the pack, ruining the rations and their cloth wrapping. My hemp and rope survived getting wet, as did most of my other equipment. 
Some of the makeup in the disguise kit had been compromised, but most of it was salvageable. I was thankful for it, knowing I would likely need to use it soon. My thoughts were interrupted by a sudden warmth spreading near my right hand. I looked down at the pouch of raven dust attached to my belt. Heat was pulsing from it. I took it off my belt and sat down on the bed, pulling the cord open. A raven's head emerged from the pouch. It looked up at me and blinked, shuffling awkwardly as more dust congealed underneath the head, forming into a body and legs. Von Der. It spoke. It seemed to have Quinn's voice. I'm here, Quinn. I have an update on our mutual friend. What's your situation? I'm alone, staying at Pluck's Inn and Tavern. Ooh, try the sapphire mead if you get a chance. I heard it's to die for. The raven flapped its wings and briskly shook away particles of dust from its freshly formed legs. I wondered, not for the last time, if the raven itself was more than simply dust. Anyway, I finished my autopsy on Miss Liger. Couldn't find any blockages in her airway or typical signs of strangulation. I arched my brow. Typical? Don't beat me to the punchline. What I did find was discoloration in the intestinal walls, along with some purple pustules forming in the liver. Tell me, what do you know about Zarekis? You mean demon's teeth? I clarified. It's a plant. See it mostly in the dark life forest in Solest. Poisonous barbs on long, spindly black vines, said to catch travelers underfoot, can paralyze if left untreated for too long. Right you are. It's a muscle paralytic, often cuts off the breath first thing. Only demon's teeth, and the poisons that use it, are typically fast-acting. Miss Liger was alive on that floor for at least a month, sleeping. What's more, I found very few signs of decay or atrophy. I'm thinking whatever put her out for that long must have also slowed her metabolism. That would have slowed the poison in her system as well, until she woke up. And the poison resumed like normal, I finished. I felt a twinge of guilt in my stomach. It was similar to how I'd felt in that small house in Grey Sky, watching Eleanor Liger choke to death in front of me. Had I not intervened, would she still be alive, sleeping on that floor? Then again, what kind of hell is that? I tried to stifle thoughts of what it must have been like. Lying there in forced sleep, poison coursing through her veins. Did she have nightmares too? Like some of the others in Grey Sky? Was she being controlled or tortured in some way? I remembered her wide eyes holding my gaze as she died. I just sat there, helpless. Did I do her a kindness? Or rob her of a chance to live on and be cured one day? What good was this power Isolde had given me, 
if I couldn't even use it to save an old woman. So now all we need to do is figure out the details. Where Everwake got the poison, how it was administered. Assuming Everwake poisoned Miss Liger in the first place. I frowned. You're saying it could have been someone else? Maybe. After all, Solust is a Draylish sovereignty. As an Adenist, Miss Liger wasn't exactly fond of Tosca's cult taking over the place. Maybe there was- No. Look, Von Der, I know you and Tosca have history, but you have to wonder. She wouldn't do that, I said. I stood up, keeping the raven on my arm as I paced the room. Tosca started that cult for the money, not because she cared about Skalos. She certainly wouldn't get her hands dirty for him. Besides, if that were the case, her name would have been the first thing on Miss Liger's lips. Quinn sighed. An odd thing to hear coming out of a raven. I mean, there's also the possibility that Miss Liger took it herself. Why would she... I don't know, I'm not a psychic. Maybe she knew Everwake was coming for her and tried to end things on her own terms. I considered Quinn's words. Well, perhaps it's just guesswork at this point. I'll make a note of looking for anything to do with Zarakis here in Sunscape. Good call. Found any leads on the chip? Just one. Lennox Fade. Runs a fencing operation out of a bar on the edge of town. I assume Alzerian Doomsday devices won't exactly be on the specials menu. That would make things easier. I'm about to go check it out. Is there anything else? Not really. I'll let you know if I come up with anything. Appreciated. Von Der out. I moved the raven to my palm, ready to smash him into dust again. Hey, Von Der. Be safe out there, okay? I smiled. Will do, Quinn. Thanks. And with that... I smashed the raven back into dust. Pouring the dust into its pouch, I pulled the drawstring shut and tied it to my belt again. I replaced my items into the pack and slung it over my shoulder. For a moment, I gazed out the window at the business district. There was some far-off commotion. Late-night workers, drunks laughing in the streets. But for the most part, it was quiet. The lamplights revealed a hazy blanket of sea mist floating through the streets. High above, I saw bats fluttering about the cave ceiling. I felt a soundless tension, like the city itself was holding its breath, ready to scream. I left my room and asked a patron downstairs for directions to the chum tank. Take the south tunnel. On the right as you're leaving the hive, the patron said. I was pleased to learn the hive is what locals call the business district. The patron had a concerned look behind his thick spectacles, staring up at me from a leather seat near a fireplace in the back corner of the tavern. Turn left once you reach the moss-covered bridge. 
it'll take you straight there. I heard a man named Lennox Fade has a small watering hole down there. Know where I can find it? The patron blinked. The fadeaway? Why in Aiden's name would you want to go there? Business. The patron got up from his seat, eyeing me warily. You'll find it near Chum Tank's Reservoir. Popular place for those folk. You shouldn't have trouble finding it. I was about to thank him, but the patron muttered, Excuse me, and hurried upstairs. I shook my head. Should have expected that, I thought. I soaked up a moment's warmth from the fire before turning to the door. The hive's salty air greeted me, along with its white mist and its pregnant silence. One deep breath, and I was off, idly wondering if this moment of peace would be my last. Everything continues. What is thrown away does not cease to be. It waits. It changes. It finds itself in others. It becomes a tapestry, separate from the worth assigned to it by the world. Living, breathing defiance. So it is with things, and so it is with people. I turned left onto a wide metal bridge covered in moss. It was derelict from neglect, and my every step produced a scraping, metallic whine. No lights shone in this walkway. Instead, the moss itself lit the way, glowing a brilliant fluorescent green. It led me to a wide, rounded archway, bedecked with wreaths made from stained, faded cloths, warped tin cans, and broken bottles. Overripe flower petals covered the path leading into the chum tank, painting it in sickly, browning tones, and filling the air with the scent of damp earth and compost. The archway led down a slope, and from the bottom I could both hear the reservoir and smell its acrid fumes. I went through the archway, down the slope, and into another world. An island of trash and slag, floating in a small reservoir at the bottom of a tall, narrow cavern. Chutes were built into the walls high above, and occasionally bags of trash shot out and landed on the island. I saw a few scavengers outside, scouring the garbage mounds for dubious treasures. Everyone else was in their homes, boxy huts made from smashed refuse. Some had murals painted on the wooden paneling in bright colors. Others were decorated with the same fluorescent moss I had seen on the bridge. One even had a well-soldered metal sign that read, Throw away your worries. It seemed that despite their lot, the people of the chum tank were trying to make the best of things. On the rim of the island, near the entrance, was the fadeaway. On the outside, it resembled a fishing shack, squarish, bearing modest oak construction. It clashed with the more tropical materials of the buildings on the upper landings. It had a squat roof made from metal shingles, front and back decks, 
and a small dock with a dinghy roped to it, floating idly in the murky reservoir water. The fadeaway had a posted sign in front with a lamp on each side to illuminate it. Inside the windows, I could see candlelight and bodies moving around. I decided to take a detour. I scanned the island, looking for a spot where I could hide from sight for a spell. Like Nick said, the chum tank was not known for its real estate. After a few moments, though, my eyes landed on a wagon in the island's center, parked in front of a small alley between two shacks. I went down there, keeping an eye out for witnesses. When the coast seemed clear, I ducked behind the wagon. Opening my pack, I pulled out the disguise kit. Popping it open, I began to apply a few minor changes to my face. A nearby lamp post gave me some light, but it was still difficult to see. I did the best I could, taking care to be as quiet as possible. First I applied foundation to make my skin appear more sallow, resin paste to make a few warts. Then I used dye to pepper my hair gray around the temples. With some consideration, I decided those changes would be enough. Better to err on the side of fewer cosmetic changes and sell the rest myself. I put the kit away and tucked my pack behind a rock in the alley. I returned to the fadeaway, thinking carefully about my presentation. I practiced a walk, emphasizing a wider gait than I normally would have. I added a subtle shake to my hands. Under my breath, I muttered a few phrases to myself, practicing a rural Galandrian accent, similar to the kind Captain Gren had back in Grey Sky. Years before I contracted with Isolde, I served as an informant during the War of the Wastes. I ran intelligence across borders, took on fake names, and wore disguises. It prepared me well for my life now. I had to maintain these guises under threat of death. It forced me to learn focus and control of my body. No sharp intakes of breath, no furtive glances. One slip of the mask could have meant the end. When I put on a mask, I kept it on. No matter what surprises lurked around the corner, I kept the mask on, solid and secure. I struggled to keep it on that night, as I stepped into the fadeaway and was greeted by an urso. His hand, larger than my face, slammed against the wall by the door, barring my entrance. The walls rattled. Conversations died. The Urso's seven-foot-tall frame filled the open doorway. He looked like a black bear, but with arms, legs, hands, and feet shaped like a human's. Unyielding black eyes stared me down. Three claw-like scars ran down over his left eye. His muzzle twitched as he sniffed at me. Powerful jaws tensed behind a menacing snarl. Plate armor covered his torso, and his right shoulder had a pauldron big enough to be a shield for someone like myself. An armored belt and thigh plating covered his upper legs, but he wore no greaves or boots. Slung across his back was a warhammer 
and in his other hand was an obsidian dagger aimed straight at my throat. I've never seen you before, the Urso said to me, guardedness with a hint of genuine surprise. I steeled myself. This is what they pay me for, I thought sarcastically. What? A bloke can't get his bloody beak wet in this scorching slag heap? Plenty of other bars in Sunscape, human. Get lost. The Urso shoved me back, an act that required hardly a flick of his wrist, and moved to shut the door. I braced against the door, wedged myself in the opening. Muckspawn! Scorching place is run by a human, isn't it? Where's Lenny, eh? Lenny Fade? I demand service. The Urso's free hand closed down on the top of my head. He wrenched me close to him, put the knife up against my throat. I felt its point break through my skin. I felt a warm trickle of blood run down. How about I cut you to strips, human? And we can serve you to the guests. Ah, let him in, Obsidian. Begrudgingly, the Urso released me and stepped away, turning to face the man behind the bar inside. It was a middle-aged man with slicked back, silver hair, and a goatee. Longish, straight nose and a narrow face. He wore a dapper gray suit and a black bow tie. He had a smallish frame but carried himself with confidence. His fingernails were painted black, and he wore silver rings embedded with blue tiger-eye stones on his left thumb and ring finger. Calmly, he poured a shot of whiskey and slid it down the bar towards a draylish patron. <sighs> Sorry, Mr. Fade. You said he didn't want any walk-ins tonight. I said I didn't want any chum. Bottom feeders are a waste of space. Lennox Fade replaced the whiskey bottle on the rack behind him, then looked me straight in the eye. There was an almost playful energy in his steel blue eyes. This one looks fun. I took a few steps inside. The bar Mr. Fade was standing behind was octagonal and centered in the middle of the room. There were about a dozen round tables spread out around the space, worn from countless drunken nights. The support beams were covered in notes, tokens, and money from patrons past. Chimes and streamers hung from the ceiling. There was a human man in livery playing piano in the corner. I noticed there were only a handful of patrons. They all appeared well off and well armed. The Draylish at the bar sported a fur cape and gilded horns, along with a bandolier lined with throwing knives. A Kikte eyed me from her seat near the door. She wore a frilly lace dress with knee-high white leather boots. Underneath the shadow of her wings, I could see the glint of a flintlock resting on her lap. Come, 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 don't be shy, said Mr. Fade. He gestured for me to join him at the bar. What are we drinking tonight, sailor? Bourbon and blackcurrant juice, I said, pulling up a stool at the bar. Right after my own heart, said Mr. Fade. As he readied the drink, he continued. 
I haven't seen you around. You just come into port? Something like that? Hmm. Mind telling me how you know my name then? I shrugged. Locals told me. Asked them where's the best place to get a highball and a knife in me neck. Mr. Fade laughed. Apologies. Obsidian's a talented bodyguard, but he's still a bit green. I glanced back at Obsidian. He remained at the door, still as a statue. His eyes roamed the bar intensely, as though on the lookout for errant shadows. All that bloody trouble, just to keep out the chum. That money spends too, don't it? Ain't about the money, friend. Mr. Fade passed me my drink. This place? You could say it's not exactly for them. Fadeaway's got more than booze in my world-famous looks. But like anywhere worth being in Sunscape, you gotta have something better than money. Something worth my time. And you assume I do? Mr. Fade leaned in close to me. I assume that anyone dumb enough to stand up to an Urso in the slums of Sunscape has something they need more than their lives. That's what interests me about you, Sailor. I can see it in your eyes. You're on the hunt. Question is, whatever for? I sat up, took a sip of my drink. Word is you have some vintage goods. Things that can't be found anywhere else. At this, Mr. Fade shook his finger at me and grinned. Now see that? That's a question I don't answer for chum. With caution, I removed the Alzerian chip from my pocket and presented it to Mr. Fade. Got anything that can read this? Mr. Fade fixed his gaze on the chip, like a cat preparing to pounce. Rose tears, he exclaimed. Never thought I'd see one of those again. He reached for the chip. My hand recoiled, and I raised a finger to stay him. Manners, Mr. Fade, I said. So you know what this is? I know enough. I know that one of those can hold the entire Royal Galandrian Library inside. Just gotta have a Rita for it. And? Mr. Fade paused, then chuckled. He reached for a bottle and a glass from the shelf behind him. I love this pot, he sighed, pouring himself a glass of bourbon. You have something of value, all right. Only catches. You're not willing to pot with it, are you? Afraid not. The information is quite valuable to me. But not if you can't read it. Mr. Fade took a swig of his bourbon, then reached down into a compartment behind the bar. He pulled out a small burlap sack with a drawstring and set it on the table. Now, I have a few readers in stock, one of which will surely be a fit for that little chip. But I'm not about to trade it for nothing. Suddenly, Mr. Fade snapped his fingers. Instantly, the Draylish man at the bar stood up and drew one of his knives, aiming them at my throat. 
I heard the soft click of the Kiktay woman's flintlock behind me. Lastly, I felt the floorboards shake as Obsidian stepped casually over to my side. Motionless, I locked eyes with Mr. Fade, keeping his hired hands in my periphery. I gently squeezed the chip in my hand. I'll smash it before you kill me, I said softly. Oh, I'm sure you could, Mr. Fade said. Or it's a possibility, at least. And for a find as rare as that, it's not one I'm willing to risk. So, why don't we try something different? And with that, he opened up the burlap sack and dumped out its contents. Rolling onto the bar counter were a pair of glowing orange dice. The light pulsed through the translucent cubes, and they made no sound as they bounced across the surface. As soon as they left the bag, I felt a cloudiness gathering in my mind. For a moment, I forgot why I had come. A force tugged at my heart, an invisible hand reaching out to me, to all of us in the room. It took me a moment to realize it was coming from the dice, or rather, from the light inside the dice. I felt compelled to use them. Fantasies came, unbidden into my mind. Dreams of winning money, fame, power, anything I could ever want. These, my good man, are fright-touched dice. They allow even the penniless to gamble as much as they please. Youth, talent, childhood memories, Anything of value to the player. Here's my proposal. A friendly game. My reader for... Whatever you have to lose. Mr. Fade shrugged. Or we take our chances and kill you. It's all the same to me. Sweat formed on my brow. I began to feel... Disoriented. The bar around me... Even my would-be assailants seemed so detached, so dissociated from me. The only thing that felt real was the pair of dice in front of me. Vaguely, I could feel a burning sensation on my right forearm. The ebon mist was reacting to the fright-touched dice, screaming inside me for its destruction but I could not heed its call. I could only think of the spoils I could win. The reader, yes, but more than that. Could I win the dice themselves? Could I use them to pry secrets about Everwake from unsuspecting minds? Could I challenge Isolde with them and win back my past life? So engrossed was I in these thoughts. I hadn't noticed my hand resting atop the dice. They felt warm as coals picked fresh from a hearth fire. The words came tumbling mindlessly from my mouth. I accept. Mr. Fade smiled wide. Perhaps it was a trick of the light, but for a moment his teeth seemed unnaturally sharp.
All right then. The name of the game is Dog's Luck. Echoes of Exeser is written, produced, and performed by Nick Walker. Sound effects courtesy of GarageBand and Freesound.org. For questions or comments, email us at echoesofxeser at gmail.com.